Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today, Canadian Federation of Independent Business President and CEO Dan Kelly on 71,000 jobs lost nationally in November when a 10,000 job gain was expected. The scourge of human sex trafficking with Dr. Kim Melman Orozco, international expert and author of Hidden in Plain Sight. Global News senior correspondent Jeff Semple on the UK election, December 12th. And a promise of affordability for Canadians in the throne speech as 46% in this country share they are just $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills. Lead story over the last 24 hours, of course, is in our our economy, the Canadian economy, shed 71,000 jobs in uh, the month of November. 71,000 jobs gone. The jobless rate went to 5.9% from 5.5%. And project projections had been that there would be a 10,000 job gain, not a 71,000 job loss. And that 71,000 job loss for one month is the highest monthly rate since the Great Recession in 2009. The uh, goods-producing sector lost 26,600 jobs. Manufacturing, down 27,500. Natural resources, 6,500. And the services sector lost 44,000. And uh, public administration jobs, 24,900. So just over 71,000 jobs gone in the month of November. So we're going to talk about this with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Mr. Kelly's organization represents the number one employer group in this country, and that's small and medium-sized businesses, the entrepreneurs of Canada. Dan, thank you for the time. And uh, that that uh, that number is huge, particularly given the fact that we were expecting or projections had been there'd be a 10,000 job gain in November. Yeah, no, that is a pretty big worry as we approach the holiday season, uh, especially given that that wasn't expected by many. I will say uh, small and medium-sized firms, though, uh, they have been reporting some some worries about the state of the Canadian economy for some time. So, uh, again, one month job numbers do not a trend make. So I do, I do want to make sure that, that we, we have to look at this in a larger context over the next few months. But it's a worrisome sign especially at a time when uh, we're moving into some fairly significant tax hikes starting January 1st, 2019, uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. How, how do we make that, uh, how does this happen? The projection was 10,000 jobs would be added. 71,000 jobs are lost. Is that just, uh, you know, the way things develop, that the projections just can never be fully predictable, or was, is there something else at play here? Look, there there are, of course, challenges, ongoing challenges with measurement, and, and that's why it's very uh, important to, to be cautious about interpreting one month's jobs da- data. You need to make sure you look at the trend line. Uh, but it is an abrupt halt to uh, what had been a pretty good run for the Canadian economy from a jobs perspective. There is, of course, many, many small and medium-sized uh, uh, employers are telling us that they still have a shortage of workers and that there are limited number of people that are applying for some of the jobs that they have on offer. I think we're moving into an, an environment, though, where we actually have both problems. We have uh, higher rates of unemployment, uh, you know, that, that, that certainly could come with a, with a recession. Um, 
at the same time that many employers are struggling to find the people that they need for certain types of jobs because Canadians just don't wish to do them. And, and that is a worry. I think a lot of this, though, we, we've been predicting at CFIB that there is going to be a day of reckoning for the giant tax hikes that, uh, that have been put in place. Uh, I'll note that uh, 2019 was the first year we saw, a, uh, first year of seven years, that Canada pension plan premiums are going to be going up. And January 1st, 2020, your listeners should know that every single one of them is going to see, that's employed, is going to see a reduction in their paycheck. And every single employer is going to receive a, a reduction in their payroll budget as a result of the 2020 premium increase. And then there's five more years of that ahead of us. And, of course, political parties and governments uh, make light of it. Or if they don't make light of it, they say, well, it's really, it's absorbable. It's for the good of the country. It's something we need to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, as you point out, your uh, your members, who are the number one employers in this country, have been warning for some time that things are not the way they should be or the perception is not reality. Perception was everything's fine, jobs are readily available, more jobs are coming, we'll survive everything just fine. Maybe, and let's emphasize maybe, maybe not. Yeah, no, and, and you know, uh, further evidence of that is to see what's happening in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. economy was is still on a job creation tear uh, where that seems to be stopping in Canada, and and, and that's a worry. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think it's time to be worried worried about the state of the economy. We've got to make sure that governments are taking some measures uh, to to their credit. The Liberals did announce, as as part of the throne speech, the the first reduction in in personal income taxes. Uh, so that's a that's a fairly good thing that uh, that should stimulate a little bit of demand. Um, but, you know, higher rates of government spending do bring about a day of reckoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worry that that may be here. Yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, we're running uh, significant deficits. We have a national debt that is approaching $700 billion. We have provincial debts that are significant, the province of Ontario being the highest provincial debtor, over $300 billion. And most of that was uh, generated by the liberal regimes of uh, Mr. McGinty and uh, Kathleen Wynne. So you add all of that, and then you take the fact that consumer debt is at $2 trillion. And for every dollar Canadians are taking in, they're spending $1.77. That kind of uh, trajectory is not sustainable. No, it's really not. And, and you know, even uh, provinces with conservative governments have, have slowed some of the uh, spending yep. reductions that are absolutely necessary uh, as part of this. We uh, Most notably here in Ontario, uh, the Ford government has, has slowed down the pace of change with respect to getting the books in order. Uh, that is a that is a worry. That is a worry as well. We've got to government's got to have got to take these things seriously. We have on top of all of that in in four provinces pay, uh, carbon t- uh, pricing increases, and given the throne speech, one expects that that's going to be even more years of that. All those dollars that are coming out of the pockets of entrepreneurs ultimately do mean that. Entrepreneurs can do less of what they're good at, and that's creating jobs and economic opportunity and, and paying some of the taxes that, of course, uh, that, 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 that fund the services that all of us as Canadians enjoy. And, you know, the unfortunate gift that keeps on giving is the fact that uh, many consumers, particularly if are in, in that group who's affected by the 71,000 jobs lost in November, consumers will start to be more cautious with what they spend, and then they don't drive the economy forward, as is expected. This is just a series of problems and issues that has to be addressed and has to start, does it not, with the, with the federal government and then has to be addressed by the, by the provinces. 
And if November is not an outlier, then it has to be addressed very quickly. We've got to watch what's happening in the job numbers in the months ahead. If this starts to become a trend, I think that the governments are going to have to uh, make sure that they that they pay extra close attention to every spending decision that goes on. I hope the message that they receive is not now is the time to stimulate the economy with even more government spending. The the, the big worry, of course, is is Canada prepared for another big recession? It's going to happen at some stage, and and you know we've been spending our brains out in in otherwise good economic times. Will we have the resources to stimulate the economy, as is sometimes necessary in bad economic times? Uh, you know, you can't. I, I worry that the, the they they only have one way of thinking about that, and there's there's never a good reason uh, to to cut <laughs> to cut uh, spending, and always a good reason to increase it. Uh, that logic, unfortunately, doesn't really hold, uh, and can get Canada into a whole bunch of trouble. Well, the uh, red light went on yesterday, and uh, it had better be paid attention to, because that is a significant number. 71,000 jobs lost when 10,000 were expected to be created. Dan Kelly, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Anytime, Roy. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Canada's small and medium-sized business community. And again, they are the number one employers in this country. I think they, uh, they account for... 54 or 55% of all the jobs in Canada. Now, the issue uh, that we're going to talk about now is human trafficking and sex trafficking. And uh, Jeffrey Epstein's name immediately comes to people's minds. And rightly so. What I didn't know was how big an industry this is, how big a criminal enterprise sex trafficking is of human beings is. And just trafficking of human beings is a massive, multi-billion dollar industry. Dr. Kimberly Melman Orozco is an international expert on human trafficking, qualified as an expert witness in criminal and civil court. Her work is published in books, peer-reviewed journals, magazines, news outlets. She's conducted more than 2,000 interviews with human traffickers and their victims. And her book, is Hiding in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. Dr. Melman Orozco, thank you for the time. I had no idea this is as thank massive. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. I, I, how big is this enterprise, this criminal enterprise of sexual trafficking of human beings? Well, because of how clandestine it is, how difficult it is to identify, we really don't have reliable statistics on the prevalence. We do know, um, generally speaking, it is one of the fastest growing types of organized crime in the world. Um, Some would say that it has surpassed the sale of uh, illicit guns, and it's just right behind the sale of illicit drugs. Um, They talk about how you can sell a person more than once. It's difficult to, uh, and the risk of being identified is very low, um, and the rewards are, are very high as far as the economical benefit um, that these criminals are, are looking at. So um, it's it's extremely prevalent, but it is under-identified within the criminal justice system. So you don't see a lot of cases um, land in human trafficking convictions, but it 
people will tell you that it is the fastest growing crime and there are more slaves today than in any other time in history. So we talk about sex trafficking because of the prevalence of the Jeffrey Epstein stories now. Well, there's also, as you say, the broader reality of human trafficking, sweatshops overseas, moving migrants across borders. So this qualifies as 21st century slavery. Yes? Absolutely. And I mean, it it really, if you look at the industries in which it touches, every one of your listeners has used or consumed the products of slavery in their day-to-day lives. Every single one of us, including myself, including you, whether it's the textiles that we wear as clothing, whether it's the uh, chocolate that we eat. I know that there's been a lot of exposés of the cocoa um, that's sourced from the Ivory Coast and connection to child labor trafficking in really just horrible circumstances, or even just agriculture. I know that there are a number of cases involving um, the agricultural industry here in the United States, and I'm certain uh, there are a number of cases there in Canada as well. I, I mean, whether it's the food that you eat, the products that you use, the clothing that you wear, the likelihood that it, it at some point passed through the hands of a modern-day slave is very high. So let me just focus for a, for a few minutes on the issue of sex trafficking of human beings or the trafficking of human beings for illicit sexual purposes. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein would qualify, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, he's not, I guess, the... He's not the he's not the norm, right? He's not he's not no. the he's not the, the the person who you would most frequently encounter. He, well, as far as being termed as a sex trafficker, no. But does he fit the profile of a commercial sex consumer or a man who may be purchasing the sexual services of a a, a sex trafficked woman or child? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in my interviews with these commercial commercial sex consumers, they tend to be very uh, come from very affluent backgrounds. They tend to be, you know, have great careers, uh, degrees from um, prestigious universities, and they have the money to to spend not only on the types of services they want to procure, but also in legal defense when in it they they get caught. So that's the the, the consumer. Uh, the sex consumer, boy, what a term! <laughs> what a use of the term consumer, but it applies. Uh, but in 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 Epstein's case, he was both the trafficker and a consumer. Yes, that's absolutely correct, and I think that that is is an anomaly. But at the same time, when you're in when it's involving juveniles, I think that's where it crosses a threshold right. where consent cannot be a viable defense. And if you are even receiving commercial sex services from a, a child, somebody under the age of 18, you can be charged with, with, with sex trafficking. Well, you, you should be, and you should be put away for a long, long time, and I would probably favor forever. But uh, let me take a quick break, uh, Dr. Melman Orozco, and then, and then I want to ask you about, um, about who, these, who these traffickers are, how, how the, the trafficking of human beings takes place. And and you've said that it's not completely, not always completely uh, hidden away. And uh, and I want to ask you as well, because this will be of interest to the parents and adults when they're considering their children, uh, what are the signs that they look for uh, in, in young people, in their kids, as far as sex trafficking or human trafficking is concerned? 
Dr. Kimberly Mailman Orozco is uh, the author of Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. She's an expert on the issue of of uh, human trafficking, and she's interviewed more than 2,000 human traffickers and their victims. Dr. Kim Melman Orozco is my guest, human trafficking expert. Her book is Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. Uh, Dr. Melman uh, Orozco, uh, who are these traffickers? I, mean, I guess I guess Epstein, again, fits the bill. He's He was moving young girls around on his private plane to his private island and other properties. People saw what was going on. That's not the, uh, the, the sort of the normal thing, the way to do it, but it's is that just the way that people are trafficked, where the trafficker moves them from location to location to location, person to person to person, and uses and abuses them as they can make money from it? Well, the, the movement actually is inconsequential to a charge of trafficking. If you're looking at what fits the bill, what rises to the level of a sex trafficking situation, I, I mean, here in the United States, I refer to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, but that de- definition is adopted internationally through things like the Palermo Protocol, which um, which the UN uh, pushes as the in- internationally accepted definition of trafficking, and that is the use of force fraud, coercion, deception, or threat for the purpose of exploitation or the exploitation of anyone under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And so for Epstein, the exploitation of anyone under the age of 18, he was sexually exploiting them. And as far as whether he fits the bill for, for a trafficker, I mean, in my interviews with convicted sex traffickers, international sex traffickers, they are not the average criminal. Um, even if they're not formally educated, these men and women are very smart. They are very cunning and manipulative, and they're very savvy, um, illicit businessmen. I mean, they've created an illicit enterprise, and they, they, they operate just like you would expect a businessman to, to operate. And I mean, to that effect, one of the sex traffickers, so I'm, I'm actually reading from page 93 of my book, um, a, a quote from a, a convicted sex trafficker. I mean, this guy, uh, I'm not going to give you the name because it's anonymized, but he was, he was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. He was sex trafficking from women from Ukraine to the United States. Uh, at one point, his associate was on the, the top 10 FBI most wanted list. And when I was asking him about how he's able to sex traffic women, he, he told me a cunning, this is his quote, he says, a cunning individual is very capable of making another person believe that he or she is in control, concealing their intentions until they lead that person to the edge of the cliff. Now, that quote, the reason why I included it, I think it's very insightful to how articulate these men can be and to how they see their crime is really trying to socially engineer somebody to do something that is, in fact, exploiting them, but to do it really in a way that they think it's through their own own volition. And I think that as far as Epstein is concerned, he does fit that bill. I think he was a very cunning manipulator, and he manipulated these uh, young ladies, these these kids, these teenagers, into believing that he was going to help them or that he cared for them or had connections that were going to in some way improve their lives. But really what he was after is their sexual exploitation. Uh, can we bring this uh, to this country? Yeah, I know that you trained the RCMP in Halifax. 
What do you say to the issue of sex trafficking in Canada? And what do you say to police and, and law enforcement about where, where they have to focus and what's the training consist of? The training consists of, so typically I, I do use my book as sort of a manual for, for law enforcement, and, and it's actually used as a manual for law, law enforcement training by other organizations as well as far as how to identify the red flags, different typologies of trafficking. Each chapter is a different type of trafficking that I touch on, and there are two sections. I focus on sex and labor. I mean, types of labor trafficking that your um, your, your listeners might encounter and might not even be aware of it, There there's a whole uh, section of labor trafficking involving door-to-door solicitors, door-to-door sales crews, where they're labor trafficking people into, into those. Um, and, and I've actually encountered them at my, in my home neighborhood. But as far as, you know, what your listeners are likely to encounter, what the training consists of, it really is being aware of these subtle red flags that you might not pay attention to, but really might be uh, mean a lot as far as signaling that somebody is being trafficked. With regards to... Um, uh, other red flags, for example, I, I tell a story in, in my book about uh, I, myself patronizing a nail salon. So if you have a listener that's at a nail salon in, uh, in Canada and they ask, uh, they ask the women to pay tips in cash or they're, they're, they're yelling at the technicians or the technicians don't speak English and seem to be afraid of the owners – or if you can find a reference to that nail salon on any of the number of commercial sex consumer review boards, like, for example, internationalsexguy.info or rubmaps.com, you know, if your nail salon is being listed there as being a place where they're providing uh, illicit sexual services, there's a good chance that those women might be trafficked. They might have been told that they would just be working at a nail salon or they might be doing some other type of labor. And all, all of a sudden, once they get to Canada, they find themselves working in a illicit uh, massage parlor. So, I, I mean, it really does depend on the type of trafficking. It depends on the area in which you live. But it is very prevalent. It's rampant. Um, and as far as the training is concerned, again, coming back to asking questions, being vigilant, mm-hmm. they say, you know, if you don't see it, you're not looking. And that holds true for Canada just as it does in the United States and in every other country across the world. And I'm sure that it holds true for parents keeping an observ- observation on, on their children. We have less than a minute left. When you speak to the victims of sex trafficking, uh, is are they able to recover from from that experience, particularly if it's an extended period of time? It is very difficult for them to to truly recover and and get to a situation where they are independent and can see you know some social mobility in their situation. I've had victims tell me that uh, literally, I have a quote in my book. You know, even though I was being sex trafficked. At least I had a roof over my head and food in my stomach, even though I was getting my ASS beat before I went to sleep. Wow. You know, and so that that's a very sad testament to society when any woman or child yes. thinks that being trafficked is an improvement to their life. But that's the reality. And so being vigilant and helping people in marginalized situations, right. you know, that's kind of how we can focus on prevention. Dr. Melman Orozco, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Have a good Doc, day. Bye-bye. Dr. Kim Melman Orozco, her book is Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. The U.K. election takes place next Thursday, and uh, when we were talking about the election 
getting underway. How long ago was that? The idea was it was all going to be about Brexit, and the question now is, is it really about Brexit, or is it about Boris Johnson and James Corbyn, or is all of that interchangeable? Jeff Semple is senior correspondent and video journalist for Global News, formerly based in London. In fact, he's heading back to London, I think, tomorrow, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Jeff, instead of my speculating when you're going back, why don't I just ask you? <laughs> well, I think my flight is booked for uh, Monday morning. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to going back. As you say, I was based there for about uh, almost six years and moved back a few months ago. So uh, looking forward to uh, a bit of a homecoming for my home away from home. And, of course, finally, hopefully, witnessing some kind of uh, an election result that will give some kind of direction to a country that is, you know, has just been directionless for the past few years, ever since it had that Brexit referendum. What is your uh, your instincts and your experience tell you of what's going to happen? And really, is this election, has it turned out to be about Brexit? Or is it about Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, primarily? And if it is, is that all interchangeable? Are those three parts essentially interchangeable? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, it is, you know, very much been dominated by, of course, the two leaders of the main two main parties, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the main opposition party, the Labour Party. Uh, and and, and in, in a sense, it is about them because they are both, um, you know, pretty unpopular. I mean, Boris Johnson has, a, you know, a decent personal popularity rating, but is, you know, is actually um, his, his rating has plummeted quite a bit over the last little while. Jeremy Corbyn, also incredibly unpopular personally. So, you know, we are kind of, for a lot of voters, looking in the UK at, you know, which is the least worst option here of the two. And, of course, there is the Liberal Democrats as well. It's sort of the centrist party, but they're not polling very well. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of cynicism in a, you know, generally pretty cynical British electorate uh, going into this election. And, and I think, make no mistake, this is, you know, uh, largely an election about Brexit. Um, and I think, uh, you know, on one hand, we are seeing that play out in the, the the opinion polls so you have most of those who are in favor of leaving the european union voting for the conservatives voting for boris johnson and then those who want to remain the remain vote is is, is essentially split between the labor party and the liberal democrat party and that is why i think you know in part anyway why we're seeing the conservative party doing so well in the polls it appears that boris johnson is on track for a majority government when the brits go to the polls on thursday but it's worth noting roy that that is what the polls were predicting similarly in the last election in 2017. You'll remember then Prime Minister Theresa May, and what seems like an eternity ago, but it was only a couple of years ago, she called an election hoping to strengthen her majority government. And in the result, she was, you know, dealt a disappointing result. She was left with a minority government, uh, despite the fact that the polls suggested that she was going to win a majority. She won a minority, was never managed to pull a deal together for Brexit, and now she is you know, no longer the prime minister of the U.K. So in short, the polls are predicting that Boris Johnson will win the day on Thursday, but they have been wrong a few times before and you know, most notably on Brexit Day. Uh, so, you know, expect the unexpected, I think, is the biggest takeaway from my time in London covering politics there. Just like to ask you one more question. Could we see a real split in the UK where voters in England will vote very differently from those in Scotland or those in Northern Ireland and Wales? Could the UK be split? Yeah, I think the UK is, is definitely split. And I think that's, you know, certainly for people who value the United Kingdom um, and, you know, Scotland and Northern Ireland are very concerned about the direction things are going. I mean, the, you know, Scottish National Party has said many times that if there is, if Brexit goes ahead, especially a hard 
quote-unquote hard Brexit, the version that Boris Johnson has been advocating, that the Scottish National Party would push for another Scottish independence referendum. Uh, we've heard murmurings of you know independence pushes in, in Northern Ireland as well, depending on how all this plays out. So that's a real concern. I mean, that you know this, you know if. if Boris Johnson is elected as expected next week, and he moves forward with his version of Brexit. That could spell the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom as we know it. And in speaking of polarization, Roy, another big storyline we'll be watching next week is just in terms of the youth vote versus the older votes. I mean, it, we are seeing a deep divide that is only getting worse between young people who are largely in majority, largely in favor of the Labour Party and opposition young people largely in favor of remaining part of the European Union. It's their parents who want to vote for conservative okay. and leave. Uh, so a very polarized electorate. And, you know, so it's a, it's a, a nasty election, I think. And uh, But, you know, still, as I say, expect the unexpected. Uh, the British electorate has surprised us more than a few times over the last few years. So I'm um, happy to be heading to London and uh, hope, to, hope you'll tune in for some of the coverage next week. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Roy. Jeff Semple, Global News. I'm one of those people who are, um, I can't, I can't make my minimum payments. I can just, not even, I have to go to the food bank. I can't afford enough gas in my car to get anywhere. Uh, this is from caller Karen, and she had uh, gone back to school and and uh, had uh, qualified for a specific position in the transport industry, and she couldn't find a job. And uh, and I, I listened back to that call, not just the 23 seconds that we play for you, but I listened to the whole call once in a while, and it just absolutely is uh, so disturbing. And we had so many calls. When I open the phone lines, and I will again in a few minutes, for a few minutes, asking how, I mean, how difficult is it for Canadians? How, what's the affordability situation look like? It's one word, one thing to have the word affordability show up in an election campaign and say it's a major issue, affordability. It's much deeper than just the word affordability. And you heard that in that call. It's much deeper. There are people who are struggling tremendously. Ipsos, um, Polling show that 46% of Canadians, 46% of Canadians are $200 or less away from not being able to pay bills, 46%. So when in the throne speech, the commitment comes up to making life more affordable for the middle class, okay, and raising the personal exemption to $15,000, okay, that's good. Um, but but in, in addition to that, 46% of people who are $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills, 31% told Ipsos that they don't earn enough money to pay their bills. Now, is this because people overspent? Is it because greed overcame reason? There's all sorts of theories and, and positions people take and, and, and thoughts that we'll, I'm sure, hear. Sean Simpson is vice president of Ipsos Canada. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Sean, I remember so well having a conversation with you about that poll mm -hmm. and being absolutely shocked, and I still am, that 46% of our population says they're within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. Yeah, and I've got bad news for you because as of September, it's actually up to forty-eight percent. So we're not we're not even moving in the right direction. Wow! So we're right, almost. I mean, we're right at the the fifty-yard line here. Yeah, and I 
I hate to say it, but we're not even in a recession yet. Uh, you know, That's the economists true. tell us that we're, you know, chugging along fairly well. The most recent job uh, indicator was it was a bit soft. But, um, you know, this is sort of best case scenario for the country. And so if the economy does turn south, and, and we know from our polling uh, for MNP and, and, and for Global News as well, that roughly half of Canadians think a recession is coming. So when it comes, how are these numbers going to be affected? Are we going to see that 48% tip over that half line and get into the 50s or maybe even closer to 60%? Oh, I spoke with Mr. Bayesian, the uh, president of uh, MFP, that you did the polling for. And, and I remember him saying that for many Canadians, and I forget what the percentage was, but it's a significant, well, you know, it, it is a significant number, uh, the interest rates, higher interest rates, or greater personal expenses could tip them over. So we're really riding uh, the, the, the thin edge of the wedge here. Yeah, and, and as you say, not only is the economy you know, doing fairly well, uh, relatively speaking, but interest rates are low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what we've found in our polling is that 45% say that if interest rates go up uh, you know, much more, uh, which is they haven't gone up recently, but if they if they go up, they're afraid that they will be in financial trouble. Um, and, and so, you know, we've got, you know, every metric that we have points to around 50 percent of the population uh, that is 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 really struggling to make ends meet. And of course, you know, the average um masks variations and so we know a few things we know for example that more women than men uh, are within that two hundred dollar um per month mark of not being able to to pay their bills we know that it's highest in atlantic canada at 56 percent and in quebec at uh, at 55 percent and among people who whose household earns less than forty thousand dollars per year two-thirds of those people are within $200 of insolvency each month. And insolvency rates are going up. Yeah, well, it, and it, it seems to track with the uh, with the polling here. Um, so, again, a, a recession is, is, is coming. We know that affordability was, a, was a, a top issue of the campaign. And normally in elections, we talk about the economy, which is sort of this more general, you know, nebulous word that I think encompasses uh, affordability a little bit. But when we were talking to Canadians, um, you know, they were saying affordability, things like gas, things like housing, and people are really feeling that their incomes are not rising as quickly as the costs around them. So, you know, it, can people do better at, not, at, at, at you know, trying to rein in on, on discretionary items? Maybe, but there are things that we just need, uh, and the price of that is going up and wages don't seem to be. It's a very, very concerning situation, and that number... And you say now it's gone from 46 to 48. That is really, really concerning. And uh, the folks who manage our country have to take uh, take this into really serious consideration because the, the shockwaves will just spread right at, right through the uh, through our through our national economy as well. Oh yeah, that's right. When when people uh, can't pay their bills and are defaulting on their loans and and can't get a job. Um, you know, they, they still need, need support and they still need to be cared for. And, and then it becomes, uh, you know, the public's responsibility to do that. And and we actually know, you know, we've been aggregating that the $200 or less figure, but we know the proportion who already say they have nothing left over at the end of the month 
And that's 29% of Canadians. So we've got 29% with nothing, you know, another 19% with somewhere between a buck and and, and $200. But so almost one in three, almost one in three say that at the end of the month, they've got nothing left and they struggle to pay their bills. Wow. Sean, thank you very much. It's really, really, it's important information. It's information that the governments of all stripes need to take into consideration with legislation and uh, and taxation legislation. Thanks for joining us today. Good talking oh, to you. It's my pleasure, Roy. Thank you. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos. So 48% now. Might as well say half of the Canadian population within $200 and not, not being able to pay bills. And uh, 30% of the population has no money left at the end of the month. None. So then you hear... And Sean brought it up, discretionary income. And I heard somebody talking the other day about discretionary income uh, on a, in an interview that was done on television. And this person was being somewhat arrogant and saying, well, look, uh, just spend less. You know, just don't go out to eat. Don't, don't go to movies. Don't buy what you don't need to buy. Well, how many people do you think of the 48% who are within $200 and not being able to pay their bills are actually going out and spending money on stuff they don't need. This is really, really concerning. And I, I, you know, I thought about the idea about a recession, but then Sean brought it into, into fine focus. If we head into recession, and there's all sorts of warnings that we will, then what? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.